All right, okay, okay, all right. Hey, Google, play Mary J. Blige, Real Love. Just trying to get the vibe right. Got it. Real Love by Mary J. Blige. Glad you got Playing it. Playing on Spotify. Playing? There it is. Okay. What's going on? All right, as everybody comes into the room, you know what I'm saying, get your... Get your popcorn, sit down, have a seat, relax, relax. You know how we do here. I want to make sure everybody has a good groove. You know what I'm saying? Get in the groove. Get in the vibe. Sometimes you just got a vibe in life. Only Good vibes only, though. Good vibes only. Only good vibes. All right, Mary, appreciate that. Hello, America. Hello, world. Hello, you, it is your man, Cashmere, California, and this is the Pod is Good podcast, aka the Notorious P.I.G. That's right. This is episode 22. 22. Make some noise for number 22. Make some noise for number 22. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Thank you for being here. Pod is good. And all the time, if you know, you know. If you don't keep listening, you will learn. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. Prepare to be entertained. That is what this show is designed to do, to either entertain or empower those that are listening, which today is you. Whether you're joining us on Facebook or on YouTube or you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you're listening to us from, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your focus, and I, I will do my best to honor that time by giving you another incredible show here on the Pod is Good podcast. Moving right along, I'm going to bring in my guest. We are going down the government road today. We will speak on an area that we often talk about. We often get into the prison industrial complex, and all of us have some type of idea or opinions about it. Some are for it, some are against it. Some have people that have been in that complex, some haven't. You know, some of y'all received those calls. Press, you know what I'm saying? Press nine. And others never don't even know about that life, which is cool. But all of us do understand that there is relief that needs to be done in the way that that system is approached. So my guest today has worked in government for a very long time. Um, she's had her experiences and her views on that system and the systems around it. And just being uh, a member of the community seeing how that affects the the youth and 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 how art imitates life and how laws that are uh passed how that affects things she was kind of in the in the backbone of all this being able to see it all unfold and now she's going to share it with us ladies and gentlemen coming to the pot is good studio make some noise for sandra clay Hey there. How you doing? How you How's doing? everybody? Good, good. All right. Can you see yourself okay? I do. Thank you. Good, good. How you been? I have no complaints. 
I've been doing pretty good. This is a good thing. Why yes. complain anyway, they say, right? Right. Nobody's <laughs> listening. <laughs> Nobody's right, listening. So, before we get into the, the, the deep parts, you know what I mean? We got, we, I told you, we're going to take a journey today. You, uh, we had a great fireside conversation um, along with your husband who was here a couple of episodes ago. And we discussed some very, very interesting topics. And I said, you got to come on the show and relate that to the people. So before we get into all that, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the um, San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in Oakland, went to school in Berkeley, and eventually moved to El Sobrani slash Richmond, the later of my teen, uh, teenage years. So I'm an East Bay girl. Okay. Okay. And and so did you have a big family, small family? Um. I'm going to say medium size um, as it relates to those that I interacted with daily because of, you know, where we lived. But for the most part, uh, my large family is most mostly in Las Vegas. Um, my grandmother's siblings, um, they all uh, migrated to Las Vegas from Louisiana. And there was a ton of us there. I, I remember our first family reunion in 1979. Um, there was approximately about about four to five hundred of us in attendance, and the number grew for over uh, maybe for the first ten years of the consistency oh, of the reunions. Our numbers just grew, but our generations fell off because they had passed away. Mm. So, mm. but um, from the conception of it, it was yeah easy for five hundred in Las Vegas. It was wow. a pretty big and beautiful thing to be a part of that that is incredible so so as the generations grew what happened did the younger generations not carry that that yeah. baton is that what happened absolutely that is what happened we have a, um, a family historian and she's still alive today and uh, she's actually written a book on our family she did a lot of research and was able to go back to as late as the 1800s and so, um, and what she discovered in her research was my, it would be my great, great grandmother was actually have the picture in my home on my wall. Um, she was actually sold into slavery at the age of seven. And so um, from there, our family, that's as far back as she was able to go in, in terms of tracing our family history, which, you know, for me, that still weighs heavy on my heart, you know, at, yeah. you know, the cruciality of, you know, slavery and separating a seven-year-old from their family and just thinking about the turmoil, the heartache, the heartbreak that her mother had to go through. And But we persevered. Um, here we are today, um, yeah. you know, still living and giving tribute to our ancestors and the ones that paved the way for us. Absolutely. How does that when you when you have that connection someone that you you know their story it's not just some distant you know our uh ancestors went through this it's like you actually know you know through your family someone's story that was sold into slavery at seven years old how does it make you feel when you hear people say like man y'all gotta just leave slavery stop bringing up slavery we get it we get it. like when they try to brush it under the rug how does that feel you know it gives me a couple of mixed emotions so i don't agree with we got to sweep it under the rug because with that 
our uh, progression through slavery in spite of the um, abuse and the mental, physical, financial, all, you know, the abuse, we've come, as we sing in church, oftentimes we've come this far by faith. So when I hear that, I'm like, no, we got to honor those um, who did pay the price, shed their blood, cry the tears, work to their bones. We owe them that respect. However, what it it does make my skin crawl because that's not our history. That's not our story. That's not where we began. Uh, we're the mother of civilization. Um, various ethnicities or religions or people don't want to give credit. But if you stop and really research the word, it's Africa. Um, the Garden of Eden is in Africa. We were the mother of civilization where uh, Christianity is not some newfounded faith that was discovered by, you know, non-African Americans. Um, so, and, and, and I myself feel convicted um, oftentimes because we have such a rich history, a rich story, but we don't tell it. Um, and we're not telling it to our, our children, our grandchildren. I'm trying to do better with my grandchildren, trying to empower them and help them understand we are not yeah. what society says. You know, we are Absolutely. intelligent. We are the ones Absolutely. who have pretty much created just about every little thing that we use. Something as simple to us is simple, a doorknob. But the doorknob was, commi- uh, uh, was um, created by um, a black man, the red and the stoplight, just so many yeah. different things, washing machine, refrigerator. Um, but we allow them to tell us our story instead of we need to tell our own story. But we can't yeah. do that if we don't know it and or give it to our children as they grow up. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to pass those stories you gotta down. Pass them truly, on. truly understand. And then, you know, truthfully, new stories, because like you said, a lot of it has been hidden from us. We've heard um, you know, the, the other sides or other people's story or uh, depiction of our story. Correct. And they, they, they gave us a history. Right? right, right. Whereas we're now finding out just how rich our history was in, in, and is in so many ways. I, I actually had a guest on that brought up an interesting point that I've heard a few times over the past 10 years or so in this like new awakening of what uh, black history really is in America. And basically it's that through the the Moorish people, black people were actually already here. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that it was only American like Indians. Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, then the Europeans came and then brought us, it, it, we were actually here and some of us were actually American Indians. And I mean, it's, it, it goes very deep and it, it makes you wonder Okay, well then, what was the truth? <laughs> right. Know what I mean, it's right. Like we heard about all the slave ships, and that's one thing he brought up. He said, "Think about it. Like, where are the slave ships? Now, all these slave ships that brought slaves over, where are they? Right. Like, and it's like a good point. Like, what happened to them? What happened to? Because you know, America, they will hold uh, a token of victory. You know what I mean? They'll, right. They'll hold that forever. Forever. So it's, like, it's interesting that you know you don't see any of that anymore but um yeah right Inventions i know from from black people are yes i know i had two major convictions for me one was um not realizing as when i was in school um again they want to tell us our history our story which they want us to be, believe it began when we became slaves 
and came to America or that over in Africa, all we do is run through jungles and just, you know, um, misinformation of that nature, right? right? It wasn't until I became older and adult, it was actually a sermon that I heard from the late great, and I do mean great, E.V. Hill. He had preached, um, where do we go from here? And in his sermon, he actually gave a, a, a lesson, a history lesson, and it forever changed my perspective. The other thing was when I um, had the opportunity to visit, which I think is probably the most spectacular um, land place to visit and that's the african-american museum in washington dc oh my god there's yeah. that place is so beyond words there's so much in there uh the, every one of us had to walk in and come out feeling empowered but however when i got to the first wow. floor which again it's kind of models not kind of but it models the slave ship and the the beginning of what is americans perspective in history of us um I felt some kind of way, <laughs> kind of got in my feelings a little bit, but then I got convicted again. Like, but again, can I really get upset if I'm not doing my part, which is, you know, teaching, you know, my grandchildren as they come along um, or even having these discussions with my adult children about that's not who we are, kings and queens, you know, we're, we're intelligent people, we're smart, we can get things done, we, we're survivors. And so, True. yes, that's kind yeah, of yeah. Our 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 history um, deserves more storytelling. It does absolutely. We, we can't we can't um, allow just books that are shoved in the back of libraries or you know the one or two progressive teachers in the school to somehow lead the march that we should be leading. Right. As you know, as family members and whatnot, and you know. For somebody like you who has such a big family, y'all should be able to tell all of us. Right. <laughs> yeah. Our, our family. Can pass, you, you can pass along enough torches with that group. Yeah. Our family historian is still alive and her mind is still strong and sound. And she's like 92 years old. And I love That's... to go visit her and sit at her feet and just listen to all the knowledge and the um, mm -hmm. that she just imparts on you. She wants to. She, she'll, yeah. Oh my gosh, I should have you take the phone there and sit it down and you talk to her and we'll just listen. You know what? I won't, we... I won't ask any questions. I won't interrupt. I will be a fly on the wall and we will just take in the knowledge because not only does that knowledge need to be shared, it, truthfully it needs to be recorded. And I think that's uh, a big gap between our previous generations and ours now is that the technology has developed in a way that we can now take those small conversations, those but powerful conversations and record them. So it's even easier to pass it along to the next and the next to the next to the next. But oftentimes our, you know, earlier generations, you know, they, they didn't grow up with technology. So it's very foreign to right. them. It's very uncomfortable for them. And so finding that balance where they can have that, open transparent space where they can release all of this history um that that we need to know and for us to be able to capture it like it is you know as as pure as it is coming out of their mouths not a you know third hand you know reenactment or you know recap of it the more powerful it could be you know i i believe we can make that happen i'm gonna be in her presence yeah. uh in september 
So when, when we're done, you know, maybe a little later this week, we can chat about it. I like it. I like it. Um, all right, back to, so you have this huge family. Go to Vegas, are having massive family reunions. Um, is your family, were they like big on birthdays as well? Was, 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 did they save everything for the big celebration or did you guys celebrate all the time? Or did, what was your fondest memory? You know, oh, wow. We celebrated. Childhood. Yeah. Wow. We celebrated. Um, and so again, majority of the family is in Las Vegas. And then, so I'm speaking of times when my grandparents were still alive as well, which uh, takes us into the nineties and the two th early two thousands. Um, so uh, prior to uh, um, your question is, did we celebrate? Absolutely. And for my grandmother and her siblings, uh, we would often go for birthdays, anything it would be birthday, retirement, wedding, debutante, um, holidays, because it's 4th of July, you know, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas, we pretty much stayed in our own area. Um, my parents, um, we would stay home. And so, but we would go to our grandparents' house one year, be at my grandparents next year. It would be at one of my aunties. The next year we'd be at my uncles. And then one year it's at our home. So in that little travel group um, for the holidays, the intimate holidays, we averaged maybe about 25 to 30 people. Oh, wow. And that went on until um, really, um, in terms of my, of my dad's family in the Bay Area, believe it or not, I'm actually the matriarch. And then I have an older cousin who's about two years older than me. He's actually the patriarch. And we've often looked at each other and go, we never thought we'd see this day when I'm the matriarch and you're the patriarch. So with that being said, he and I and our children stay in contact as much as we can, but he lives in another state. So now it's really just about, you know, um, I have three adult children, eight grandchildren, my mother and my sister. Um, and so our events really just incorporate us. We just celebrated my mother's 81st birthday. And um, Very nice. yeah, Very it was nice. about 20 of us. And that was just from my children and my sister's children. Wow. All right. So, so you are retired now, right? I am August 5th. Got yes. Feet up now. Yes. Kind of. I mean, you got, you got grandkids. So I got grandkids. Sure so, yes. Feet on all the way up. <laughs> I'm a full time <laughs> Grammy. I love it. <laughs> From Grammy on standby. Awesome. What, a, what a blessing. <laughs> yeah. What a blessing. So I'm um, pretty sure that's a nice, you know, change of pace from the government work that you did. So let's, but let's go back to there. Let's go to your first, actually, what was your first job period? Oh gosh. You're talking about when I was like 14 or 15? Yeah. I want to um, know where, like where it all began before we get into the government. Side. All right. where, what was the first one? So my motivation to have a job and continue to keep a job started when I was about, well, I was 14, um, getting ready to turn 15. And I applied at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I learned oh. the entire menu and was really ready to start my, my first day of work. And I got there after I got out of school, my grandmother dropped me off. I was excited and found out I couldn't work because I was too young and I didn't have my school permit. Oh. 
So needless to say, I was crushed, but I didn't give up. I waited. I had to be 15. And then I had to get a permit from my counselor. So as soon as I turned 15, I got my uh, worker's permit. And then I went and applied at uh, Jack in the Box. So that was my first um, job as a teenager. I was Jack in the Box. And then um, just determined to work. I actually picked up a second job with the first job as a teenager. And I worked at McDonald's and Jack in the Box at the same time. Look at you. All of them. <laughs> just hitting all the, all like, the top dogs. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> really what is really going on with you. Right. And so, um, and that went on maybe for about a year, maybe about a year or so. And then I went, uh, start working at an old, old clothing store. I'm not even sure if you were born at that time, but it was called Chess King. And uh, I worked there uh, throughout the rest of my um, high school years. That was a shoe store? It was No, it was a men's clothing store. Oh, men's clothing. Mm -hmm. okay. Right, right. And so um, I worked there until I graduated from high school. And then I went into the banking industry for about a year, year and a half. Um, the bank was called Crocker Bank. They've closed down. And again, um, that was years ago. And then from there, um, just little odd jobs that, you know, um, more in the corporate air, corporate uh, arena. And then finally, I started working for the city and county of San Francisco. That would be my first uh, county job. And it was in um, San Francisco at um, in one of the communities called Hunter Point. And I worked at one of the satellite clinics um, at the, at a, as a unit clerk at one of the satellite clinics in uh, San Francisco. What did you say it was called? The name of the this clinic? Or I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, so the name of the clinic was Southeast um, Clinic. Okay. And it was a satellite of San Francisco General Hospital. Oh. And a San Francisco General Hospital is um, governed by the city and county of San Francisco. So that was my first government job. I was there for about eight years. And then my next government left there and, and worked for CHP as a dispatcher. And I did that for about three years. Um, CHP dispatcher? California. That sounds like a big jump. It was, was a huge jump. It was a huge jump. Wow. But um, yeah, it was closer to home. Um the benefits and everything were there they were both good with both industry you know both the uh city and county um it was also but it was a it was a nice travel for me because at that time i was living in um uh, vallejo and so it was quite a travel california highway mm -hmm. patrol was this the uh, control center is also located in vallejo so that was a much mm -hmm. more convenient and made more sense commute yeah <laughs> But what what were those uh what were those shifts like for a dispatcher? Is that like ten hour shifts, um, twelve hour? I mean, we had options. You could do eight hours, you could do ten hours, or you could do uh, well. Actually, you could do eight or ten. Um, when I okay. left, they implemented the twelve hour shift. But while I was there, you was either eight or ten hours. I always tell people um one of the reasons I left is because they're the hours and the work um the expectations of your presence um, it's not family friendly, uh, which makes sense mm -hmm. because the radios have to be manned 24 seven. So yeah. you got to do a lot, you know, just, just say if I wanted to attend my niece or nephew's graduation and it wasn't on my normal 
um, day off. I had the responsibility of finding somebody to trade with me. Um, so you can imagine Christmas time, New Year's, Thanksgiving, those days kind of were um, very challenging because everybody wants those that had the right schedule. They were home with their families. The new kids on the block, we had to take whatever was left. So, yeah, that sounds tough. Yeah, so sounds- it was a struggle. My boys were playing, uh, involved in sports, and I was missing a lot of their activities. Aww. So it kind of influenced me to look for um, different Something employment. Else. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's how I ended up at the California Department of Corrections. But prior to me going to the California Department of Corrections, I worked as an office manager for a charter school in Vallejo too. So nice. Yeah. So now, as a dispatcher, do you recall like the craziest call? I know every dispatcher has to have at least that one story where they're like, "I cannot believe this." Yeah, happened today on my watch. <laughs> um. <laughs> I've had a couple of challenging calls, but they turned out to be successful. Um, when I say mm-hmm. successful, meaning CHP were able to get to them and the person was, uh, the last that I know, the person was okay. And um, one in particular that I remember, um, a family called and they were hysterical because their brother had called and pretty much said goodbye to them. And um, they had very little information. They just, they knew what type of car he was in and they knew the basic vicinity that they, that they thought he was going to be in, which is, which was the pier in Berkeley. So um, I had to try to work off of that very little information. um, And I had to work with Berkeley um, police department because at that time, 911 calls were um, routed to highway patrol, even if it wasn't in highway patrol's jurisdiction. So when they called the particular call and the uh, concern wasn't necessarily in CHP's jurisdiction. So when I was on the phone with Berkeley, um, I'm, I'm, I'm translating or I'm just going between the caller and the, and the police department. And so we had to work together, myself and the police department. And, um, you know, to go check peers, I tried to get as much information as I could about him, him as in the, the person of interest. And yeah. so um, long story short, the, um, he was found in the, at the Emeryville Pier. So that was kind nice. of one, yeah, that was one. But, but man, that, that has to feel like, the, it has to be interesting to go from, you know, you were just maybe sitting there talking right. to your coworker. Oh, girl, I can't wait to go to lunch. Oh, I brought some leftovers from last right. night. And then next thing you know, you are completely engulfed in a family's potential suicide watch. Right. Right. Like to, to make that shift and then to somehow come off of it once you get off the phone. Right. You, you Sounds tough. Yeah, it is. And you, you're absolutely right. You can be sitting there one minute and the next thing you know, your adrenaline is flowing. But it's interesting how what your knowledge, how your knowledge and your training kicks in, you know, just you mm-hmm. go in automatic, you know, pilot and you just start it. You, you just start asking, you know, the right questions. You're multitasking. You're, you know, inputting information. You're like I said, I was communicating with the caller and the, uh, the police department and. And, but you have to remain calm 
and I'm when I say remain calm is speaking of the dispatcher, because you, you you don't want to excite the callers. Um, if you're excited, they're excited. You're not giving them any comfort or building any trust that they trusting right. that you're helping them, that, you know, we're going to get through this together. Um, but when it's all said and done, one, one of the things that CHP, um, the supervisors were very mindful because they monitored the calls as well. Um, they were very mindful that after a stressful call of that nature, they make sure someone comes and relieve you so you can walk away and kind of debrief. If you need to talk to them about it, if you need to, you know, just get a breath of fresh air or just kind of sit quietly for a few minutes, they always are, um, that's part of the process. And they were very good about ensuring that that happened. So that movie, I forgot uh, the name of it, but it, um, Halle Berry was in it. 911. Yeah. That was it. That was down. I think so it was called 911 they... or The Call. It might be called The Call. So then they were pretty accurate to life as far as like the process and how it goes and how the call is treated and the person being relieved and yes yes and you can stay with wow. the call to see it all the way through um yeah. yes you know interesting enough i didn't watch that movie for that very reason i'm like hey, i had enough of that in my life i'm not trying <laughs> I, not on my free time I'm, I'm not doing it right right i'm not trying to watch work. i'm not trying to watch it no even if it is halle berry if it, I, you know halle is the bomb but yeah i'm gonna have to and you know and y'all you do know at the end of the day the outcome's going to be good or hopefully right, it worked right. out but yeah just a little too it I, I left that behind. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing you said, you know, you guys have to try to stay calm, you know, so that, you know, the, the caller isn't excited. But I've also heard where that can do the opposite. Like I've heard calls where the person is like, you need to get here fast. Send somebody fast. And they're like, okay, what's your name? And they're like, don't worry about my name. Just get here. They're, they're bleeding. And they're, mm, Okay. Um, are you close to them? And and the tone makes them think you don't care. You're not taking this as serious as it is. And I've heard that, like in those nine one one calls from maybe court cases that I listened to or watched, and it felt like that was was actually irritating the caller because they felt like you don't have the sense of urgency that I need you to have. I, I'm smiling because I've had a call like that, and the guy actually. Yeah. <laughs> He actually cursed me out. I was all kind of bees and and any anything he could come to his mind. I, I was just everything but, oh, you know, man. helpful. So it was a situation where he had witnessed a young, a, a, a child, um, it might have been a teenager. Um, he was out on the Delta and he went under. And he's, mm. and so when he calls, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm asking information. However, um, he said, he cussed me out and told me, stop asking those blank, blank, blank questions. <laughs> Get somebody out here now. As I said, sir, I, I acknowledged, you know, that he was, you know, f you know, scared. I says, but as I'm speaking to you, Coast Guards are in route. Help is on the way. All and right. you, in the, in the, in your, um, ability to answer the questions that I'm asking only helps the um, person you're concerned about get the adequate help that they need. And so he kind of settled down a little bit. So yeah. I think in situations like that, we just, they just have to, or I'll say, we just have to let the callers know yeah. that um, prog um, there's movement. People are coming, you know, the ambulance right. is in route or because the way it's set up, um, I'm taking the information. There's another dispatcher that's already um, speaking with 
for example, the Coast Guard's dispatcher. And they're relaying the message and the Coast Guard is en route. And um, the, I'll just call it the support dispatcher is putting the information in so I can see, and I know that somebody's on their way. Mm. But this information I'm asking only helps. I, I could tell, you know, go to the Delta, but where? I mean, where the Delta on, on the north side, the east, where? You know, so right. we have to ask the questions. Right. Yeah, no, but I think letting them know that I there is movement. You know, this is happening. Ambulance is are on the way. The fire department is around the corner or, mm. you know, letting them know that there's help. Um, and I'm not just sitting here um, taking information. It would wonder, be nice. Yeah, I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's happened enough that maybe in the future they'll adjust the policy to, you know, once you maybe there's like levels that they give you guys as far as like, you know, the caller level like you know, they're at a one or they're at a five, and if 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 the um, dispatcher recognizes that they're talking to someone who might be at a four or five, immediately they let them know help is on the way. Um, continue to answer these questions so that we can provide more help and then go and, you know what I mean? Maybe just kind of giving them that moment of reassurance that it sounds like they need. And sometimes, like you said, they may not get it until they kind of flip and then they get it and they're like, oh, okay, I, I didn't know. Right. I, I, I do. I think, um, but it is important. There's certain information you have to get before anything and that's right. location and what's happening. Yeah, so yeah. while I'm trying to settle you down, we're losing minutes and seconds mm -hmm. that can make a difference in a person's rescue or assistance. So I do know our training is um, immediately what is it and where, you know, and then the other part. Yes. When I get that, I get the location. I get um, what's going on. So I'll know what type of help to send. Then, yes, then I can give you the speech of comfort, letting you know I'm working with you. This, yeah. you know, I'm not wasting your time. But the other good thing that since I'm, you know, I haven't been a dispatcher in years, but now um, the 911 calls, if you call from your mobile phone, I don't know if you remember me stating, initially they all went to California Highway Patrol, which of course it was a floodgate. And often you hear people complain about, I called, I couldn't get through. Yeah. Well, if it's, you know, you can have, 50 people calling on the same incident. So that's tying up all the lines. People don't know that and that's that's understandable. But what also was happening, if you had a phone call uh, emergency and you were, let's just say in your house, that's not a highway patrol call, but it was still coming to you, coming to highway patrol. So now they have it, the lines now are, are filtered to go to the appropriate agency. So if you uh -huh. use your phone in your house, it's supposed to go to the local police department and or sheriff department if who's ever the who's ever jurisdiction it is at that time versus them all just going to one center yeah so i think that may be helpful um because you know if it's the vallejo police department then they're going to know exactly where you are yeah that definitely sounds like a, a good a good adjustment that they made yes you're right just I, i've had a few times where i had to call 911 and and matter of fact I was in the bay area uh the last time that I remember it vividly happening and I probably put in uh, over 20 calls to to 911 oh. and didn't get anyone at all the whole time and was the whole time speeding through San Francisco trying to find a hospital 
Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And and that was wow. um that was an eye opening experience. That like wow you wow. you know for people that don't call nine one one but you we all know it, and so you just expect that when I have an emergency I'm gonna call nine one one, and that's gonna be my best option. But no one thinks well if I can get through. Or if the right. line is open, right. or if right. no, it's like this is, this is this is nine one one. This is this should be the phone right. number I get a call anytime, and someone's right. gonna answer. Right. Well, and that's our training, right? I mean, yeah. growing up or just now, emergency messages is you dial nine one one. But I mean, I, I'm not real sure what the prop, you know, what the concerns are. I don't know if it's short staffed or or what, yeah. but it is very alarming. When you call nine one one and nobody um, picks up the phone, or you get a you know you get a voice message, stay on the line, someone to be with you shortly. Right, right. That yeah, that's very alarming. I mean, imagine the you know it's one thing to be in my situation, a young uh, person you know that's driving and can kind of facilitate it themselves. Right. But imagine that you're not that, and you Correct. really need it right now, and it's life or death, and you know, you could be somebody that's defenseless, handicapped, you're in your home, someone's banging and hitting the windows and there's nothing you can do. And you're calling 911, getting a busy signal, Alina. Yeah, it's pretty alarming. Yeah. So, but, you know, interesting that, uh, or not interesting, but good that you didn't have those kind of stories where things just didn't go so right. You know, but I do know about some that did not. They, they were not my calls, but okay. I was there and saw enough of that too, though. So, oh, yeah. pretty, pretty, yeah. When um, okay. yeah, it's pretty, it's it's pretty painful, yeah, you know. I but you imagine. you just you, yeah, you just have to you have to find mm -hmm. out um how to process the you know, and I'm talking about now for for my own. Well, I had to learn how to process uh calls that were beyond my control yeah um, for you know for peace sake or not to carry it with me i worked really hard on um being able to leave my work at work and leave home at home yeah. and try not to um bring anything home I only have one incident where i brought it home in the sense that um there was an accident and um when the highway patrol found, you know, rolled up on the accident, there was a little girl sitting in the back seat and she had her seatbelt on. And unfortunately, um, her mom was ejected from the car and had passed away. And the little baby said, um, she was just sitting with her seatbelt on waiting for her mom to, to wake up. Oh. And so it, it, the highway patrolman who responded um, it kind of took him back a little bit. We talked, he and I both talked about it. So I came home and, and, and the, the, the five-year-old didn't know her, any phone numbers or addresses to family members. And my daughter was about the same age and I came home and drilled her and made sure she um, knew yeah. my number, her dad's number, her grandmother's number, just, you know, address, you know, things like that, that we don't take, we take for granted. Yeah. Oh, that's painful. Yeah, that's painful. Yeah. And um, did so? Is there a specific protocol for the dispatcher in those situations when things go down a tragic end? Like, is there a mandatory amount of time that they have to 
take off? Is it the rest of the day is immediately off, go home? Um, I mean, it, it, it does depend on the nature of the incident. Mm. It does depend. And that's the dispatchers, um, the supervisors trust the dispatchers to do a self-evaluation and, and just kind of determine what they need to do. Okay. Um, we've had, you know, situations where, you know, an officer may have lost his life in the line of duty. And there were some dispatchers that were, had personal, you know, relationships, you know, and I mean, in, in a healthy way, I don't mean, you know, and um, they've had to go home because they couldn't, you know, finish the day out. And it's interesting when, um, regardless of whatever the work relationships are on the floor is what we call it. When some, when a uh, tragedy hits any of the dispatchers, everybody come together. And that's kind of, that was one of the wonderful things of it. Um, or you can take, you know, just be relieved from your radio. You know, uh, I just need a break for an hour, leave the grounds, come back, you know, just, just kind of, they let the dispatcher kind of determine what they need. Um, to get through the gotcha. incident. Now that's the way it was when I was there. I don't know what it's like now. <laughs> right. I hate to, hate to say it, but I know there's somebody out there that's dispatching today, that's taking a little advantage of that and just waiting for the call that they go, oh, I need a couple days. I need a couple days. Ooh, I need to go and then home. they call like, okay, girl, I can go. I'm going to be able to go to the party. I got off work. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has to happen. It has to happen. Nah. All right. And then, so how long were you a dispatcher again? Uh, for about three years. For about three okay. years. Okay. Yeah. And then you say you left. So you left being a CHP dispatcher. And then what was next? I went to the school. I went and worked for uh, a charter school in Vallejo. It was called Mare Island okay. Technology School. So oh, I went nice. and worked there for about, man, I think I might have been there two years. And then that's when I finally landed at the prison, uh, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And then, so once you get to the prison, that's your that's it. last time having a first day at a new that, job. That was it. That was it. That was it. Okay. And you are at Solano County Prison. So I retired from uh, Solano County, uh, well, not county, Solano State Prison. There's a difference in county Solano and state. state so, um, yeah, yes. I retired from Solano State Prison. However, uh, when I returned, when I started with California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, I was at California Medical Facility. And both uh, California Medical yeah. Facility and Solano used to be one prison, and then they split it. So they're literally like next door to each other. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Literally. Gotcha. So that's not the one. I remember there was a prison in Vallejo. What, what is not that? What not is a that? prison in Vallejo. There's no prison. Is that a jail? Well, you have jails because you have the police department. Sorry, sorry, not not Vallejo. Vacaville. Um, Vacaville. Yes, yes, yes. yes They're Vacaville. both still in Vacaville. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, so it's the same one. Yes. Yes. So so. So that California Medical Facility. Uh -huh. And Solano State Prison are now two different prisons. But at one time, they were one. And then they split uh, um, split off. But they're still located at, at the same places. Got you. Got you. Okay. 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 And you're, you worked in what department? The records department. In the records. Correct. So, so you see who's coming in, who's going out. Yes. You, you like, 
part of the backbone of the facility. Correct. Absolutely. Everything flows, pretty much everything flows in and through the records department as it relates to the inmates. Okay. So then first question I have, because I ain't never been to prison, <laughs> but I've seen a lot of movies. I've heard a lot of stories and there is one consistent thing that I hear. Somehow people always end up leaving with less personal items than what they got there with. <laughs> what happened, records department? Well, Where is all the stuff Okay, going? so now that's that the, the inmate items um, mm -hmm. are beyond our scope. We didn't deal mostly with that. However, mm -hmm. just from being there and talking and kind of seeing how things go, there could be various reasons inmates' items are... Um, let's just say misplaced or unaccounted for, okay? One could be when they when inmates are moved from one institution to another institution, something could get could, can get left behind it, you know, that way. It depends on the items because a lot of the things that the inmates are allowed to have are in their possession. So did they give it away? Did somebody take it? It isn't always because custody, so to speak, is, um, you know, mishandling their items. Gotcha. Um, so, so it just kind of depends. I mean, I know the story make it seem like there's a cut and dry answer to why things are happening, but it's so much that goes on. Um, unfortunately, that's a whole different world. Yeah. It's a whole different culture. Um, so to say, you know, well, so-and-so had a nine inch TV, but when he left, his TV didn't come with it. <laughs> Well, <laughs> did he give it away? Did he barter it for something? You know, I'll give you my TV, you give me your noodles. I mean, you know, it's yeah, no, yeah. I, there's just no straight answer. Um, do things get misplaced and, and I would say lost sometimes during inmate movement? That could be the case too. Okay, so I'll get like a, a umbrella like view of your time there and then we'll kind of get into more detail so when you go when you look back on it now having you know done your done your time from day one to the day you leave and retire when you look back at that time what is your feelings about it what is your takeaway from that time of your life um well first of all the work that i did I always say that it's not the type of work where you, you know, when you're done, you go at the end of the day, like that was, I, I made a difference or that was good. Unlike a teacher who might at the end of the day, get a student who might've been a C student and you've, you've helped them elevate to a B student or an A student. You feel a sense of gratitude or a sense of accomplishment. Um, yeah. Working in the prison industry doesn't offer you that. But what it does offer you is to the opportunity to do the best job you can do to keep your community safe and to um, we have the we have the title rehabilitation and the hope is that there are inmates that come in and they do and some do are coming out rehabilitated they have changed their lives so with un, under that scope you do feel like okay that's you know although I wasn't directly responsible. You can't feel a sense of, I'm glad to hear that. You're done. You're not coming back. You've, you've, I've talked to a couple of inmates, um, well, one in particular, 
who has been released and just doing us, uh, he is a phenomenal contribution, you know, to the community, you, you know? Wow. Um, and I just happened, we just happened to have a discussion and then he shared some things with me and it was like, oh, it you, you almost could be a poster board for the Department of Corrections wow. and Rehabilitation, because this is what you want it to look like. Right. You know, married, great job, good father, just, just doing the things that, you know, that you learned while you were locked up that you needed to make a change and you did. Um, the, the, the Department of Corrections system is, I, I feel is really complex. It has the, some good things in terms of, that sounds like an oxymoron, how can prison have some good things? Um, but there, there's, there's the, always the great concerns that, um, I think the department is trying to do much, much better. And I can say this because I had to attend a lot of the courses is mandatory that um, in regards to um, um, eliminating uh, excessive force, especially with all the um, bad publicities and things that are happening now in the media with officers and the mistreatment, you know, of um, citizens who are of color, you know. So I will say Department of Correction has become very conscientious about it and are really doing all, uh, working within their scope to implement zero tolerance of excessive force to the point where um, if I eyewitness, you know, if I had eyewitness um, an officer abusing um, an inmate and I didn't say anything, there, there would have been repercussions for me as well. That's how serious they are. If you see it, you don't report it, then you are going to be implemented in it as well. And, and so is, is that policy, sorry, is that policy from what you recall, is that statewide or is that just at that facility? No, no, it's statewide. It's CDCR um, hmm. policy. And so um, every year we had to take a course. It was the same information. And, and you had to literally, um, you had to take a test, you had to participate, you had to um, um, understand the seriousness of it. You know, it wasn't something we could just brush under the rug. And so um, I, I kind of commend them for that. Um, hopefully it's been effective, you know, but unfortunately people are people, um, you know, but yeah. the hope is that the message is becoming clearer. Yeah. And so uh, looking at it, I don't know what you felt about the, the you know, the prison system uh, prior to going, you know, prior to having this job in corrections, but now having done it, do you believe in it? Um, yeah, uh, it's necessary. So much like you, I didn't know anything about prison, never been to it, never visited anybody, don't know anybody that was incarcerated, you know. So the whole prison um, industry was something absolutely new to me. And it took, it, it did take me a couple of years. Um, I don't know if you ever really just get used to it, yeah. but it did take me a couple of years to kind of settle in and understand where I was, what I was doing. I remember my first week working at the prison and uh, you know, for free, um, I would just say everyday people like, you know, yourself, myself, you go through a door 
at your own will. You open the door, you go through, you go out, you open the door, you come in, you have that freedom, you just come and go. Well, one of my first couple of days, I had to get used to, it actually took me longer than that, that um, I couldn't just go through the door when I wanted to. I literally had to be let into the, to the door. I had to wait until the gate was open. Once that gate closed, I'm in. I have no control over in and out you do in your free life. You know, so it took a, it just took a minute to understand when you're working at a prison, there was different things that I was accustomed to that you cannot do um, when you're when you're incarcerated or you when you work, even employees, we couldn't have cell phones. We there was certain type of um, this going to sound interesting, but just throwing a pen, a writing pen in the garbage can was a, you couldn't do that. That was considered hot trash. Yeah. You have to put it in a certain box. It has to be sealed. Certain employees have to pick it up to dis, you know, to discard it. It was just certain normal things that were now yeah. not the norm anymore. So learning how to adjust to that. Well, it had a lot to do with again, you know, the safety of employees, the safety of the community, and in the safety of the, you know, the inmates as well. Um, I do think the institution is necessary, um, especially for those that may have, you know, fallen on, made a bad choice, realize it, and now they, they want to do better because now it's offering opportunities to go to school, to learn skills, you know, to do a lot of self-reflection, a lot of self-growth. Then there's those you can't help because they're unfortunately, you know, um, their criminal tendencies are a part of who they are. So it's kind of, you know, yes, in one sense, um, do I think some things are a little extreme in terms of, um, you know, punishments and things of that nature? I can tell you there were a few cases I thought, wow, really? Um, And then there were some that I thought, I feel a little bit better knowing they're not on the streets. All right. I don't know you're out, so I don't know how much <laughs> how much information you can really let us know here on the podcast. But you know, cor- corruption seems to run rampant in 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 most uh, government systems. From somebody's eyes, there's some kind of corruption. You being involved in records, it seems as though you may have caught wind of some corruption here or there anything you can tell us well um i will not i would absolutely not deny that there's corruption um there's some unfortunate um staff that take advantage of their position Hmm. um i wish i could say everybody was 100 percent, but they're not um but i do think um there's a protective um layer where um, the department is being more scrutinized for the um, misuse of staff or um, misuse of employees. Do I think they will be able to 100% eliminate it? I don't, because people are people. Um, Just like we're learning, you know, I remember growing up being told, you know, the police, they're your friends, that they're safe. They are uh, um, people of, um, of 
of comfort. If you find a policeman, you're good. And now we've gone from that to being pulled over for a ticket because maybe, you know, you're speeding or, you know, violating the law, whatever. And the fear is, am I going to come out of here alive? You know? Um, So, I mean, there's the good and the bad. And I think in all aspects of employment, you know, with, you know, officers, um, peace officers, uh, doctors, you know, I just think lawyers, I think everywhere we, because people are people, you know, but I, I think as a whole, do I think an agency can, can do better through training, you know, monitoring expectations, um, education, um, yeah, those things can help, but it's not going to eliminate it completely now. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes it's hard on the outside trying to gauge um, how much of it is beneficial and how much of it isn't. Because right. you know, obviously right. TV shows, they if they talk about, you know, or, or do any exposés or documentaries on the prison system, it's more of the, you know, the sensationalized, uh, you know, aggression and, Right. And and um, race wars and right they give you the worst story and, right right and so you you're kind of looking at that and it, it 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 makes it difficult to know how much how much of it is actually benefiting someone how many people are uh, taking those classes and coming out with a degree or coming out with a trade or finding a religion or helping some other inmate because they know you know, they're going to die behind those bars, but they're trying to inspire the young guys that are coming in. Like you don't really see that. And I'm pretty sure in your position, you didn't really see that either. I would assume. Right. Well, actually, no, um, I have, I did, I have seen some, I've seen some, um, um, that's what I was, I think I was alluding to a little bit earlier. If the, if they want to make a change for the better, there are programs there that's available for them. Um, it's just like, you know, you can present it, but in anything you have to, as a person have to want to make the change. Right. They can't make you change. Yeah. You have to want to. And I will say that CDCR has put in, in programs and continuing to find programs to implement that offers um, um, those that are incarcerated opportunities to change their lives around. Yeah. And so um, one of one of the programs was... Um, um, you're going to have to be patient with me because I've been out of it for about two years. So <laughs> some of the, um, I, uh, some of the language has escaped me. Yeah, I think that's on purpose because I'm retired. Yes, it definitely is. It uh, definitely <laughs> is. Um, but there, there were, there were ways that the, um, um, they can earn what we would call merits or, um, um, milestone credits or things that they could do. So what that means is, so they go and take a class to maybe just, you know, maybe an English class, you know, to help um, improve their language skills or um, a a certain amount of reading, not just any type of reading, um, um, specific, you know, readings um, that were approved. They might improve their reading skills or they might take a carpentry class or, 
an iron class, just different types of classes, different yeah. types of programs. So when they, let's just say an inmate enrolled in one and he did six weeks of that course. Well, if he did six weeks of that course, so many days was taken off of his sentence. Ah. Does that make sense? Right. Ah. Now hear me, there are criteria for being able to take the courses. So it's, you know, but, um, they meet the criteria, which, you know, it's, it's pretty open. Um, and so they take the courses. So they did six weeks of it. So now I'm going to, now you get credit for 40, you, you, you get to go home 42 days sooner and they can take more than one. They might take four or five courses. So there were so opportunities. So it's like a one-to-one -one rate of correct, correct. time in class and time mm -hmm. off your sentence. Right. But Got there were, it. there is a maximum of how many, you know, like maybe I'll just throw this out there because again, you know, like maybe a maximum up to one year. You know, if you reach you plateau to at one year, you know, that you can take off your off your your sentence. Yeah. You know. That's that's and then and then once you reach to one year, you wait and then you start all over again. So, you know, so and but these programs are, you know, for the intent of rehabilitating or um helping them to even just do a lot of self-evaluation. What got you here? What are you gonna do different? You know, what resources do you need to do, you know, to survive on the outside? Man, I'm, I, they were smart to put a limit on it though. Cause you know, let's right. just say, God forbid, I had to do something because they were threatening my family and I ended up in prison. And I found out that I could get a, for every day that I spent in class, I get a day off my sentence Let's just say I had 10 years. Well, I'm going to be in class for five years straight <laughs> and get out in half the time. <laughs> There's nothing else to do. What are, right, what are my right, options right. here? Right, right. <laughs> Man, right. I mean, okay, so on the flip side, to play devil's advocate, I guess, a little bit, what stands out is the thought that for someone to take that step, Right. And say, you know what, I'm going to go and better myself. I'm going to go and um, try to do something for me, invest some time back into me while I'm here. That mm -hmm. takes a certain level of awareness, a certain Correct. aptitude level to to make a decision there. And you would assume that there might be a large majority of the people that are there that don't have that. And so then it kind mm -hmm. of feel kind of feels like you're offering a great program to a part of the population, but then what happens to the others? You see what I mean? I mean, it's for everybody, well, but, but. But see, at that point, it becomes about safety. If you got a person that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to paint the picture that everybody in there has that mindset. There, we, there are people in there that need to be in there. It's yeah. satisfying. You know, for for our safety, for community safety, for I mean, and, and those that are listening might feel like I'm being judgmental, but you got to understand, I literally have seen cases. I've read cases. I've processed cases that are frightening. And mm -hmm. I have said, OK, I feel better knowing that they're here and not actually on the street. Um, however, I mean, there, there's one um, inmate that actually stated, if you let me out, I'm going to do it again. You got to trust that, you know, so 
So it's the prison system is um, it's it's extremely it's extremely um, different from society. Officers that go in, and a lot of people may even think that because you have good officers as well with well intent um, that they all are doing too much. Listen, these people are putting their lives on the line every day, yeah. every day, because everyone that's in there, you got smart, talented creative, genius-minded people that are unfortunately made a bad decision that landed them in prison. So everybody in there is not, you know, unintelligent, um, you know, um, <laughs> just, they're, they're not, there's some very, very intelligent people um, yeah. in incarcerated. And they, like you said, there's nothing but time. They have nothing but time. You know, so they're thinking of things that you and I would never think about, never think about. And so, um, so those that want it is there. And yes, those, there are those that don't have the ability um, to make a decision that goes, yep, I want to do this so I can get better, you know, and do better. And so let me let me back up to it's not all and, and, and it's not a situation where, OK, I got 10 years, like you said, and I'm just going to do five years of class and bam, I'm out. There's so much more that goes with it, too. The evaluation, um, they have to be classified as to be term. It depends on the type of crime it was. You know, um, yeah. a violent crime is not just going to be able to walk through a door because I did five years of extra time and show no signs of any in any, any growth, any remorsefulness. Um, the um, recidivism is is there and, and there's highly likely that they'll be back. All those things are taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to present it as if, oh, they just take a class and then bam, they're out. Yeah, I probably but for those that over oversimplified it just so I can get myself out. I think that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm not worried about you. You're just not going to end up there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, wow. Wow, that's interesting. So dealing with records, it, did you ever deal with any um, high profile inmates? And if so, is there any difference in the process of, of I don't know what you call it, inmating or in, inmating an inmate, inbounding or, you know, a, a high profile inmate? So, so we've dealt with every level of inmate and um, in that, that has been, um, in the custody of the of the prison of the state of California, what I mean by that is um, every inmate that comes in has what we call um, a file, a record file, and so in the file it gives the history of the inmate's life, the the crime, the court documents, behaviors while they're in prison. Uh, we were responsible for calculating inmates release dates. Um, we were responsible for making sure when they were processed in um, that the courts, meaning the judge, um, applied the right sentence to the to the crime according to the penal code, um, the state penal codes. And, and according to, um, we were responsible for making sure that, um, that the inmates were being treated according to what we call the department of, of uh, manual um the department departmental 
of manuals. And we had to make sure according to um, the state title 15 that all the laws and the were and the penal codes were being properly applied. So yes, in that case, we would, if it was a high profile um, inmate, we would um, be responsible for overseeing that record and making sure that everything was being applied accordingly. And now that I'm speaking, I think there's only one high profile case that I remember in particular that I actually had hands on and had to process for what we would call a lifer hearing. And lifer hearings were for inmates who were ser serving life sentences with the possibility of parole. And I would be responsible for coordinating, making sure that that inmate had his due process and went before the board of prison terms to determine if they if he was eligible for release or not. And so who puts that panel together? I always wondered that, like, when they have to the, sit there um, on the parole board, are, are those yeah. just people that sit around each day doing parole boards, or do they do other things and then they, and they have that job as well? Well, usually the um, there are commissioners, is, is what they are called, the commissioner and deputy commissioners. And I believe that position is, um, is appointed by the governor. Okay. And, and that is their role. They go from... Um, institution to institution. Um, I don't know how many there are right now, but um, certain commissioners, deputy commissioners are assigned to certain uh, you, uh, institutions where they mm -hmm. conduct, yes, the life, what we call the life hearings or parole hearings. And so they're in so many words, like, um, like, like a jury, like they, it, Correct. It, it, they, they basically are making the judgment based off of how you how you make them feel, how you come across. Tell us your story. Tell us, you know, we obviously we have records and information of what what's actually been happening since you've been here. And then we just as as a jury decide. But it's not like a, a quote. It's not like a list of items that someone hits and they go, OK, well, you hit all these. You can go. Yes, it is. It is more so that. So oh. there is um, absolutely, and it's very strenuous. I mean, mm. literally, when I say you have to dot I's and cross T's, very strenuous um, wow, process. It that. is not that simple where they come in and they say, yeah, you know, um, you've been you, you've been good in prison. You haven't had any issues in the last three years. You know, you've been compliant. You're doing it. Doing no, no, sir. It's not that simple. There is an outline. There's a guide that they literally have to follow to the letter of the law. Um, and they have to do this on their own, self-guided, self-motivated. And wow. it's um, it's pretty extensive. They have to present it to the, um, to the board, uh, the commissioners during their hearing. They have to show evidence of, rehabil of being rehabilitated, not just on paper, but um, their thought process, their response to these really, really um, deep questions, you know. Um, and so there's there's an evaluation that's going on. They have to have a psych psych evaluation, you know. Um, so there's a lot of parts to it um, before someone's. And then and then not only that though, once they're so let's just say the commissioner's granted, it still has to go to the governor to determine if he's going to approve it or not. So there's layers to it. 
it's not you just go before the commissioners. Um, there's, you know, the um, the prosecuting attorney, um, the DA, district attorney's office. Um, of course, the the inmate has an attorney, um, which they can hire an attorney on their own and pay for, or they can have an attorney assigned to them. Um, if there's victims involved, um, the victim's family has the option of attending and speaking on um, on on their behalf of the victim or on behalf of their family on what they want to see happen. So there's a lot of lot of moving parts in it. It's not just, oh, it's time for your hearing. You go before yeah. the the commissioners. They say yay or nay. It's a it's it's a pretty grueling process. Yeah. So so um, they they oversimplify it in movies because they definitely make oh, it absolutely. seem like Okay, oh, hey, hey, you're for parole. I'm a, I got one more week, and then you go, okay, you know, I, I really want to do this with my life. I recognize this, and I, I understand if you don't let me out, I probably wouldn't let myself out either. But if you do give me the chance, I'm, I'm sure to do this and do this. And it's like, you know, they go away and yeah. they murmur a little bit, and they decide hey, you got it. It's yeah, like, no, no that ain't it. That ain't how that goes. <laughs> That is that, TV. It, that is movie. Yes. Now there are <laughs> there are cases. So so what I was speaking of was light inmates who were serving life sentences. But there are inmates who 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 do, who do have um, a release date that is um, pretty much guaranteed their release date. They're not serving life terms. So. Um, they're not serving life terms. Um, so there, there is. So there are some inmates that go, "Oh, June third is my day. I'm out of here. 2023, yeah. I'm out." <clears throat> and provided that they, you know, don't get in trouble, things stay calm and they stay cool and collective. June third come, yeah, yes, they get out. We have, yes, yeah. absolutely. And so um, the records. Do you, I don't know how much you guys look at the records. But a lot. So like as records are coming in, are you familiarizing yourself with exactly each case and what's going on? And if so, do you recall any that that stood out that that jump off to you, jump out to you right now in memory? So absolutely. What our department was responsible for was um, and I was the manager over the entire department. And there were like maybe four or five different classifications under under my um um, leadership that was responsible for different processes for each inmate for their records. So yes, we touch pretty much every file of an inmate that comes into the institution. Wow. We make sure that is of the file is in total compliance to the regulations and the state laws. Right. So um, there was one case that I just it, it shook my I had to shake my head on. Um, it was an inmate, he was given a third strike. So that has been, third strikes have been not eliminated, but they've been, they've been re, um, reconstructed, I should say. And he was a homeless person and he went, I believe it was Target. He went into Target and he stole toiletries, you know, like toothpaste, toothbrush, soaps, just toiletries. Mm. And they end up giving him, I think it was 25 years to life. Oh, because he was a what? third. Strike. 
Yeah. Oh, that one. Yeah. Oh, I thought, oh, now this is not disproportionate. I don't know what is. However, um, I also know now because there were some challenges, some uh, citizens' votes on the to revisit the third strike law. It got revamped. Um, still exists, but it's not as automatic as it was when it first was implemented. It was there were cases of like, yep, three strikes, yep, three strikes, and they were they weren't necessarily violent crimes. Gotcha. You know, some of it might have been because they were selling marijuana, marijuana, or um, but a lot of those cases got reversed. And so I'm going to venture to think that um, that particular inmate was probably, I'm sure was probably released when they revamped the third strike law. Yeah. When I heard, first heard the third, uh, the third, the three strikes law, I was, I was still young at the time. So, you know, the way they sold it, it's like, it made sense. Like, well, yeah. I mean, if you just keep doing something, you keep blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, as a kid, you know, kind of just accept it for what it is, especially because as a kid, you think that everybody's on the up and up. You know right. what I mean? Every, right. every, everybody in the government, they all, they only tell the truth. There's a hundred percent honesty. This is legal, lawful, and perfectly right to do. And in, in, in every, you know, uh, every sense of the terms. And then, you know, you get older and the, the veil is is lifted, as they say. Yeah, yeah. Um, when that first when that law was first implemented, I do think it was um, very disproportionately applied. You know, and I'm saying that from the cases I read. So when it was reversed, it was called Proposition Thirty Six. When um, the the citizens spoke, and the state had and we heard them, and so they revised it. And there was we were releasing inmates by the drove because they were in there for like pet, like again, not violent. So I don't want to alarm everyone. If they had a right. violent crime that right. didn't apply, but if it was something petty, like the taking the items from um, Target, I had another guy, his hey, stole so a bike. Just trying to get clean. Just trying to yeah, get clean. Just, just, you know, he's homeless. Um, another case where a, a guy stole a bicycle Another case where a guy stole a beer out of Seven Eleven, you know, just many old things. Like practical, well, maybe not the beer, but I mean, it's like right practical, you know, things. I'm, you know, obviously we're not saying stealing is okay, right? You know, it's definitely unlawful. Stealing, but I'm just saying the sentencing was a yeah. little stupid. <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm glad that got uh, handled. You know, sad, sad that even though they make adjustments to the legal system and the prison system and laws and everything it's one one thing we all know is that but if you got it wrong you can't get any of that person's time back no if, if they were wrongly uh, accused or um you know incarcerated or whatever the case was even if they were rightly incarcerated but just for the wrong amount of time you know they they can't get that back and and that brings me to a question about um capital punishment you know i know you are a christian woman uh mm -hmm. i have been hearing recently of, of states bringing back um death by firing squad um and other versions of capital punishment that are that are out there and i know you said there are some people that you feel like you should be here 
for the safety of everyone else. Do you right. agree with capital punishment or not? That question has always vexed me. Um, and, and, and here's a couple of reasons why. One is, you think about people who are innocent and are in, and, and I'll look at Central Five. Um, the, 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 the five young boys that spent all that time in prison for something they didn't do. Imagine had they had, you know, the death penalty and their lives was in jeopardy for something they did not do. Those kind of things really are, are disturbed me and it's hard to shake, especially when I know firsthand what happens in prisons, you know? Hmm. Um, I actually, I remember the ex-president uh, Donald Trump was saying that we should bring back the death penalty based on them because he was saying that they should get the death penalty. People just, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a whole nother subject. But um, so when, when I come from that angle, I'm not at all in support of it at all. But on the other hand, my family member, somebody did that to him, crucial. Yeah. I, you know, what I, what I still feel that way. I don't know. Right. I, I pray not ever a question for me. I pray not ever. But I will say this, to be locked up in, in, in prison for the rest of your life is absolute sheer torture mm. and torment. So I don't know. Part of me say, you know, let let God be the judge and and let them let them do their time, you know. Yeah. My concern about executing people again is the innocent ones. You know, which which I believe Texas is has been pretty known for that. Incarcerating people, getting ready to either have taken the life of someone and or about to and they, these people are innocent. You know. I have right, to admit that make me I have no I do not have a flat no or I don't have yeah. a flat yes. Yeah. That's a it's always a tough space for me. As well, I think for most Christians, because it just it pulls out your your logic and your emotion and sits them on the table at the same time to try to figure right. out who's right, and that's very difficult to do. But I don't think I speak for the families of victims who have lost family to tragic and brutal type crimes. You know, I don't yeah. think that's be insensitive to just, yeah, no. And they're the ones hurting beyond. And I say that because when I um, would attend the, um, I'm going back to the life room hearings and when family members are present and they get a chance to speak, James, it was probably one of the most oh, gut-wrenching experiences because these families, it may have happened 20 years ago, but they still live with that pain like it just happened yesterday. And they have to relive it. Right. And so that made me really mindful of we don't, we just can't speak for others because we don't know what somebody's living with. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense because you do hear, you do hear some very graphic, tragic stories. And, and most of us can only imagine what it feels like to be the family of the affected uh, in yeah. that way. And it's like, like you said, you, you you pray you never have to be the one to to make that call. And, Correct. Um, yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll end with a much lighter note. Okay. Thank much you. lighter note. 
um, at least, you know, in the conversation about your time in the Department of Corrections. So uh, they I forgot the, the amount, but they say prisoners make like three cents a day or a dollar <laughs> yeah. a day. How much is it? It's a little more than that. I believe when I when I left, it was 15 cents, 15 cents a day. I want to know since you not a day, but cents an hour, I believe it. Was. Oh, an hour, an hour. Okay, mm -hmm. okay, so that makes it than fifteen cents. A day. Right, <laughs> right, much right. better. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Um, so I want to know since you're in corrections, who's writing that check? Who writes the fifteen cent an hour check? Oh, you mean what inmate? The inmates assignments they have. We have an accounting department that's specific specifically for inmates for example if inmates you know they have money on the books if somebody comes and put money on their books or you know they earn they you know they earn their money um there is a pot just for that and just for them now if you're asking do it come out of state out of, of taxpayers money or no no no, no, no. i was I, I just want i just never saw a, a paycheck distributed to uh, and so, they so I just wanted to know how, no, they, when do they, they see their money? When's payday? Yeah, they necessarily don't get a paycheck, but they get money <laughs> put on their books. Got you, got you. That, that makes more sense. sense than what I was thinking. Yeah, so I can they get a paycheck, go to the bank and deposit it or anything like that. I can just see everybody lining yeah. up. You know, yeah. like maybe, maybe yeah. it's not like a a regular bank check. It's just like like jail bucks, and like you stand in line at the human resources office, you get your jail yeah. bucks check. You go over and put that on your books, and right. You, don't worry, my, my my mind is is completely off with what exactly happens uh, behind those walls. All right, so first off, thank you for that uh that walk that walk through your your life from from KFC to the Department <laughs> of Corrections. That is that is some journey. Sorry that you missed the chicken sandwich fiasco because right. <laughs> that might have been better than your time at at the department of corrections the corrections right <laughs> um but but like every episode i try to do a top five with my guests and it's probably going to be the hardest part of the entire conversation is for you to make your way through this top five i will i will try to give you what i think will be a uh a easy topic for you to tell me your top five. Uh, I would like to know from you, Mrs. Clay. Yes. Your top five R&B or soul singers of all time. Ooh. I love Frankie Beverly and Mays. Woo! I don't care what is going Frankie on. Beverly. I don't care what song is it, it is. I don't care what I'm doing. I have to get in that moment. With Frankie Beverly and Mays. Nice. nice. Period. Um, All right. Frankie Beverly, I, number one. I love it. I'm going to have to add, um, ugh, I, I've seen so many concerts this year. My husband and I um, had a chance to do Charlie Wilson um, 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 and Chaka Khan. And then I saw Charlie on the cruise. Uh, Kim was at a jazz festival. I saw Kim again twice. We saw Earth, Wind, and Fire. We just, we just kind of, yeah, we're there. just doing that right now. So, my top is um, uh, a maze. Um, okay. I gotta go to my gospel singer, uh, Tamala Mann. Um, Ooh, Tamala. Tamala Mann. 
Um, Take me. There's a local artist that um, I don't know many people know about him, but he was once my pastor, um, and his name is uh, Fleetwood E. Irving. He's like I, when he sings, he, it just it just blesses um, blesses okay, my soul. Um, okay. I can't leave out. I'm old school. I cannot leave out Gladys Knight. There you go. And Patty LaBelle. There you go. I just I can't leave them out. I'm gonna put them Midnight Train. Yeah, Midnight Train. Um cannot leave them out. And I would say, um, believe it or not, more more of today, I I like Bruno Mars. Excited. I like list. Bruno, I like Bruno that Mars. That is a list. <laughs> so I'm a little all over the I place, did. but I but like, I love I like, it. I love it. we got some local talent. Yeah. We got some 60s, 70s talent. We got yeah. some Hawaiian yeah. took from the 70s talent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you hit all the marks. Some, yeah. some gospel. It's, yeah. And um jazz artists. Um whew, Eric Darius. I love the saxophone. Mm. Um, you know, um I like um Brian um Covert. Um I'm going to stop there because I could go on and on. Okay. It's like a top eight, you know, it's like a top eight. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed it. I have. I hope you had a great time. Thank you. I hope you come back and, and talk some more because I, I wanted to get into, there was a question that I had. I really wanted you to answer. I think we got time. Um, when I was talking to you about, this would be the last one, I promise. When I was talking to you about the high-profile inmates, it made me think of uh, a certain um, a certain president who was currently facing multiple indictments in right. multiple mm -hmm. counties, mm -hmm. and potentially, if if uh, convicted, uh, might find himself in, in a state prison mm -hmm. or yeah. So somebody on that level is it really what they say where like they just get some cushy space where they're away from everybody else and it's almost like vacation or is it not what they portray it to be in the movie so they are separated because of again even though um you know they're inmates that we still have an obligation to keep inmates safe regardless yeah. of what they've done and who they are so inmate there is um what we would call sensitive needs um, for inmates. However, I believe what most of the um, president, uh, the former president is going through is under, I believe it's under the federal jurisdiction. So that's a federal okay. prison is different than state prison. And so the yeah. rumor is, I don't know a whole lot about federal prison, but the rumor is federal prison is definitely easier time than the state prison. Um, I've heard too. Yeah. Okay. So, so the the high probability of him being separated is 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 possible, and the high probability of him being at federal versus state being a little more cushion, that's probably very true. Next time we have you back, we will speak more about um, the youth. Oh, I absolutely. Know you are around around the youth. Yes. You gather tons of experience and knowledge mm -hmm. that you're trying to you know, bless the youth with just from the, our conversation about um, the, the telling the stories of our ancestors. Correct. So I know blessing them with knowledge and information is a big part of what you are doing today. 
So I need you to come back so we can have that conversation. Will you do that? Yes, I will. And thank Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Everyone listening, that has been Mrs. Clay, Mrs. Sandra Clay. I know that you guys were uh, entertained, inspired, hopefully empowered. Maybe somebody out there is thinking about going into uh, the corrections facility or a corrections facility or coming up with an organization that provides some other type of assistance for people that need it, um, that are maybe coming out of being incarcerated, trying to reestablish themselves in society, whatever it is, hopefully some information today uh, got you on your journey a little further. With that being said, this has been episode 22 of the Pod is Good podcast, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Peace out, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, Mrs. Clay. Bye. Have a great day. You too. All right, and we are done.